open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 will be in verses 5 through 8 today. My name is Jason, serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let me read this passage for us. Get to work. Romans 4, verses 5 through 8. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. These are the very words of God. Say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we need your help. As our city is in the midst of lament, as our hearts are weary in such a season, we ask for your help. We need the words of living, uh, of living water, uh, of, of the kind of sustenance that we cannot get anywhere else. So where else are we going to go? We say with the disciples, you are the one who has words of eternal life. So help us, Father, to be sensitive to your leading. Help us to hear your voice amidst the noise. Help us to hear you speak to us, Father. And we're so grateful that you are a God who does indeed speak to us, your children. So help us hear Help us to submit. Help us to obey. We ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, if you remember, Paul is responding in this portion of his letter to an objection. Uh, Remember, his original audience has Jews and Gentiles, religious people, irreligious people, those people who grew up going to church, those people who didn't grow up going to church, those who we might say are pretty moralistic in their thinking and those who are actually quite modern. And so, Regardless of your own personal upbringing, you find yourself within the first century audience of Paul's readers that he is speaking to in Romans, uh, in fact, the entire letter. And so regardless if you grew up going to church, if you grew up in a more moralistic setting or a more modern uh, sort of setting and not going to church, this word is for us because some of us are prone to what we call legalism. In in other words, we, we obey God in pride. And others of us are prone to lawlessness. We obey ourselves out of pride. And, and yet, if, I hope you picked up on that, that regardless if you obey God out of pride or you obey yourself out of pride, we are all still proud people. And so this word is for us. We see ourselves in this audience. And along the way, Paul is writing, and he anticipates concerns that are associated with these particular, these, these two kinds of worldviews, both of these kinds of people. And in chapter 4, he addresses this question, is grace new? Or as we looked at more precisely last week, is grace the new way that God relates to humanity? Is grace the new way that God saves humanity? In other words, the objection may have been that God used to save people by their righteousness, and now he saves people through the righteousness of Christ. You see, it's natural for a Jewish reader or even a modern uh, moralistic reader today to, to sort of bristle at Paul's teaching of justification by faith through grace. In fact, one Jewish scholar said that Paul's teaching has always been unintelligible to the Jew, to the Jewish thinker. See, it's natural for us 
who have a moralistic framework to reject grace. It doesn't, it feels almost too good to be true. We don't trust grace. I trust myself. I trust my action. I trust my behavior. I trust my effort. I don't trust grace. I don't have a framework for grace when my heart is steeped in religion. Well, fortunately, what we discovered last week and what we will reaffirm today is that the answer to Paul's question, or rather his reader's question, is grace new. The answer is no. Grace is not God's new way of relating to humanity. It's his always way, his ancient way, that grace is not new. You see, grace cuts against the grain of our religious disposition, but it also confronts our contemporary presumption, and it all comes down to our understanding of righteousness. What exactly is our relationship with righteousness? See, moralism changes the law so that righteousness is attainable. This is a kind of faith plus obedience. In other words, in this kind of view of, way of thinking, we do believe God, but we also think we need to do stuff in order to stay in his good graces. So we believe God, we believe he exists, we trust in this idea of the God of the Bible, but we also think we've got to do stuff in order to earn this kind of salvation. So it's, it's faith plus obedience, which really, if we think about it, is a disguise for trusting in ourselves, trusting in our own efforts. Modernism is similar. It sort of relativizes the law and makes it uh, personal, or relativizes righteousness and makes it personal. This is a kind of obedience without need for God. So whereas moralism is believing in God and also believing in my works, modernism says, I don't believe in God because I'm good on my own. So it's a, a, an obedience without faith in that sort of modern thinking. But again, kind of like moralism, it's just another way to trust myself. I, I hope you're picking up on this. We can believe God and do good things and trust in ourselves. We can reject God, do good things, and ultimately trust in ourselves. What's, what blows the mind is that the religious person and the modern person are literally worshiping the same idol, self. I'm trusting in myself. This is what makes Jesus so different. We've learned through Romans that what Jesus does is he upholds the law and he makes us righteous. In, in this case, faith is about placing our well-being, our trust, our hope in God's love in God's power. And this is the type of faith that Paul has written about in verse 3. So move your, your eyes up from verse 5 to verse 3. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is faith alone. This is a faith in God's promise to save. That's saving faith. So here, this church, both modernism and moralism propose the same type of salvation, faith in self. Jesus, though, invites us to believe in him. Jesus invites us to trust him. And this is what leads us to verse 5. So look at it again with me. Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul, as he is teaching this, he says something is true in verse 3 about Abraham that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then what Paul does is he applies that to all of his readers. In other words, the same that is true for Abraham is true for you. Paul is telling us that there is a kind of faith which is counted or credited to the believer as righteousness. It's not moralism. It's not faith plus obedience. It's not this modernism. It's not obedience without faith. Both of these are ultimately, again, a trust in yourself and in your own goodness, and in your own righteousness. See, in our fallenness, we trust in ourselves. 
In our trust, in our, in our fallenness, we anchor our lives in ourselves. And so the question for us today, or really for you and for me individually, is do you trust yourself or do you trust God? Do you trust yourself or do you trust God? Now, before you answer that, I want to prove to us today that you trust yourself. Because we know that the Bible answer, we're gathered together in person and online as the church, right? So we know the answer has got to be, well, trust in God. That's the right answer. The question is not, do you know the right answer? The question is, where's your hope truly? Where's your trust truly residing? See, Paul is talking about a new kind of trust. If we look closely at Paul's uh, teaching, essentially he tells us that there are two kinds of people. There are those who work and there are those who believe. Do you notice that in verse 5? the one who does not work but believes. So there are those who work and those who believe. Now, Paul can't be telling us that there are those who believe God and there are those who obey God's word, and as if those two are separated. Remember in Romans 3, verse 31, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. In other words, in Christ, the law is upheld, and as a Christian, you are empowered and called to obey God's word. So Christian... Get out of your identity and your thinking that because you are in Christ, you don't have to listen to his word, that you don't have to obey his teachings, that somehow you are alleviated from the obligation and call and empowerment of his spirit to look at his word and do what his word says. In fact, as a Christian, you're the only one on the planet able to do it. You are the only one on the planet able to do it because the spirit of God resides in you. This is really good news for us. So what is Paul actually teaching? If he's not saying there are those who believe in God and there are those who obey his word, what is he saying? What Paul must be teaching us is that there are those who trust their works and there are those who trust in the Lord. There are those who trust in their works and there are those who trust in the Lord. This is who he is juxtaposing in verse 5. And those who trust in the Lord, he says, that faith, just like Abraham, is counted to you as righteousness. Can I get an amen? That faith is counted to you as righteousness. Salvation, then, is about a transfer of trust. From trusting ourselves to trusting the Lord. So when somebody asks, are you saved? What makes you believe and think that you are saved? What it ultimately is a question about is your trust. Where does your hope lie? We don't respond to a question of our salvation or our, our hope when Jesus returns or after we die with our own righteousness. We don't say, because I do good things and, and, and I think I, I offer something to the table. No, you don't. No, I don't. My hope is forever built on Jesus Christ and his righteousness, and therefore I have nothing to boast about except in Christ, by grace, through faith, that he has done a work on my behalf. This is what Paul is talking about. This is so important for our our daily lives, because as, as, as human beings, but particularly as Christians, we have this dual nature about us. Look again at verse 5. What, do, what does he say? What specifically is happening? Believe in the one who does what? Justifies the ungodly. Did you see those two parts about who you are as a Christian? You are justified and you are ungodly. Dr. Tim Keller, reflecting on this particular verse, says, says it this way, that when you receive credited righteousness, you are still wicked. When you receive credited righteousness, you are still wicked. I didn't learn that in Sunday school. Just real talk. I learned that I'm saved and now everything is good. I, I was bad and now I'm good, right? That, that, that it's not a transfer of trust. It's a transfer of moralism is what I often was taught or what I, what I picked up on. So let's let this settle in. 
that even in Christ, you are justified, yet you are still wicked. You are still sinful. You are still broken. Let that settle in. It's hard to reconcile. We might say it this way. In Christ, you are beloved, yet you are broken. You are beloved, and yet you are broken. This is why salvation is about transferring our trust. I am not trustworthy. You are not trustworthy. We are not trustworthy. So don't put your trust in yourself or me or anyone whom you meet. The Lord alone is trustworthy. In Christ, we are beloved and yet we are broken. We have received righteousness, but we still sin. Perhaps few people within the scriptures exemplify this sort of duality than King David. And this is where Paul takes us next. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, Romans chapter 4. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In some way, Paul is, is still dealing with this objection about the newness of grace. So we keep that in mind as sort of the backdrop. If you remember, first, he proved that this is an ancient kind of grace by highlighting the, the grace and faith that Abraham uh, received as the, Israel's great father. And now Paul points his readers to David, Israel's great king. So he's not just using random characters. He's using the pillars of Jewish identity and their hope in righteousness within themselves. And so Paul says, just like Abraham, David experienced salvation as righteousness apart from works. And David recorded much of his story in the Psalms. And so uh, as he did with Abraham, Paul goes to the Bible for explanation and understanding still teaches us. This is where we go for our understanding. We go to the Bible. If you have a question, go to the Bible. If you have a concern, go to the Bible. Go to God's Word. If you're not sure what's going on in the world, go to the Scriptures. If you're wondering, is there an invisible inclination in my heart that is of God or of the evil one or of myself, go to the Scriptures. Open up the book. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 reads this way. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counted no iniquity, counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. That's the passage, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, that Paul incorporates here in Romans chapter 4. And before we consider these particular words, let's remember David's story. So this is, this is a psalm from David that, that Paul pulls in to give us clarity about David's identity and his story of transformation. David was a shepherd boy minding his own business, tending to the sheep, selected by God to be the second king of Israel. The prophet Samuel famously said of David that he is the man after God's own heart. He slayed Goliath, y'all, like it's that guy. He, he extended the borders and the boundaries of Israel. He brought peace to the kingdom. He established Jerusalem as the capital and brought the presence of God by the way of the Ark of the Covenant into the city. In other words, David was beloved. David was the beloved, but remember his story fully. David also committed adultery. David was also deceptive and tried to hide his sin. He conspired and abused his power and committed murder. So David was beloved, but David was broken. He was righteous yet sinful, blessed yet in need of forgiveness. He is both hoisted up as the man after God's own heart, broken and beloved. This is what makes Psalm 32 so spectacular. 
David is not merely writing poetry. He's telling us his story. David isn't just writing something like, like in 2,000 years, we're like, that's, that's great. Let's put that to verse and song and let's sing that. David's like, this is who I am. This is what God has done in my life. Specifically, David uses this word blessed, which I would like to testify to you. We use way too much and way too little. The word blessed. We use it way too much and way too little. In other words, I think we're a little haphazard about the way that we use this word blessed. See, in some contexts, this word merely means happy, but commentators in, in investigating this word blessed say that it is the highest term which a Greek could have used to describe a state of felicity or joy or elation. There is nothing better. There is nothing sweeter. There is nothing more wonderful. There is no higher word association in Paul's contemporary context or in his semantical capability for a human being to be associated with than the word blessed. So I wonder if you're using it appropriately. Or if it's just kind of a way that we get out of an awkward conversation. How are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. Are you? Do you know what the highest state of felicity is as a human being? See, because a lot of times when we talk about being blessed, we talk about some material possessions and material comfort that we are experiencing. We're not talking about fully trusting in the, the sovereign and living God of whom we are called sons and daughters. We're not thinking about that, but this is what Paul is keeping in mind. This is what David is keeping in mind. See, David justifies using this superlative for three reasons, and really, it's all the exact same reason. What does David say? He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. That's the blessed one. When sins are forgiven, it means that they are paid for. There is no outstanding balance that remains. You have been relieved of guilt and consequence. That's a blessed person who leads a life that is guilt-free. Blessed is the one whose sins, David says, are covered. When, when sins are covered, they are not seen on the surface. Sins are not the primary lens through which somebody is known and understood and befriended and seen. They are covered, in other words, in something else, covered in righteousness. That's the blessed person. The blessed person is one who is no longer covered in sin, but covered in righteousness. That's what David's telling us. Thirdly, he says, blessed is the one whose iniquities the Lord does not count. That person's blessed. When sins are not counted, it's not because God has forgotten or lost track of what you have done. It's because the scriptures teach us that those sins are being counted against someone else. That's the blessed person. See, the blessed person that, that David celebrates comes from the fact that God has done something about his sinfulness. In other words, he knows he is beloved because God has done something about his brokenness. See, I think one of the reasons that we don't truly understand how blessed we are is we don't realize how broken we are. It's when you know how broken you are and then God is kind to you. When you know how undeserving you are and then God is gracious to you, you're like, yo, I am blessed. It has nothing to do with my bank account. It has nothing to do with how I'm feeling. This is a reality of which I have been a beneficiary of God's grace. This is why what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 is so critical. Hear this from verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while 
we were still sinners. Christ died for us, beloved, yet broken. You see, we are not loved because we are righteous. We are made righteous because we are loved. We are not loved because we are righteous in and of ourselves. We are made righteous because we are loved. Righteousness, that, that means righteousness is not the wage of your lovableness or your loveliness. God doesn't look at us and just go, you are so special. I love, here's righteousness for you. Righteousness for you. You get righteousness today because you're so special and lovely and beautiful and lovable. He doesn't do that. First is his love. Righteousness is the gift of God's unmerited affection for his people, for those whom he has called, for those whom he has elected. That's what Paul is teaching us. So the question is, do you trust yourself or do you trust the Lord? Please notice, the Jewish perspective or or moralism is wrong. The blessed person is not the one who believes God and does good. Faith plus obedience. The Gentile perspective or the modern perspective perspective is wrong. The blessed person is not the one who doesn't believe in God, but is still able in and of themselves to do good. In other words, it's not about obedience without faith. Both are disguises for simply trusting in ourselves. Rather, the blessed person is the one who has faith or trust that God has done something for them on their behalf by grace. He has forgiven their sin. He has covered their sin. He has not counted their sin against them. However, please notice, David doesn't say they don't sin anymore. This is where our hope really lies, I think. He doesn't say, blessed is the person who no longer sins. This is really hopeful. Don't miss this. There is a presumption here in this psalm, in the language of, of David's celebratory psalter, that the blessed person will still sin. The blessed person is still going to sin. I I don't know if you need this good news today, but I do. In other words, your blessing is not contingent upon you continuing to hold it together through COVID and not yelling at your kids and not being frustrated at your boss and not sinning in the lust of your eyes and the pride of your life, right? There is is a hopefulness beyond your ability to hold it together. That means that in Christ, your righteousness is not erased by your sinfulness. Your belovedness, your blessedness is not erased like a wage that you no longer have earned because you have never earned it in the first place. See, a wage can be taken away if if you stop doing the work, but a gift has been given with no strings attached. That's real grace. Jesus forgave you and Jesus, church, forgives you. Jesus covered you and Jesus covers you and will continue to cover you. Jesus did not count your sins against you. Why? Because he allowed the Father to count your sins against him. We are beloved yet broken. This is what ought to keep our feet firmly fixed and our trust firmly fixed on the Lord. Even as blessed people, we daily need forgiveness, don't we? I asked for forgiveness twice already today. Today. Don't, don't get me counted on the ways I haven't asked for forgiveness yet, and I should have already today. I need forgiveness today. I didn't just need it when I was a kid and came to Christ. I need it every single day. I need my sin to be covered today, Jesus. I need my sins to not be stacked up against me today. I still need God. Will you please, by your grace, continue to count my sins against Christ and not against me? See, this isn't just what saves me. This is what sustains us, church. See, the blessed or the righteous person is not perfect. Rather, they have received and are receiving grace. In other words, our highest state of felicity 
comes from no longer trusting in ourselves to hold it together, but trusting that the Lord has already accomplished something that never needs to be done again. That now it has lasting effect. It has eternal effect. I think this is timely for us because we live in a moment where it seems that that the church and the world cannot agree whether we are bad or whether we are good, whether we are beloved or whether we are broken. We live in a moment where it seems that the church is constantly trying to convince people how bad they are. And so there's fair criticism that the church, we, all we talk about is sin, all we talk about is how bad people are, and the only Jesus is so messed up, right? Concurrently, the world seems completely committed to proving how good they are. And they think there's fair criticism that all the world that is justifying us, however they want to live as they see that we're good. So the church says you're bad, and the world says you're good. And the world says you're good. So the question is, who's right? Are we bad? Are we bad? Good. Are we belong? Are we good? Are we belong? Are we broken? I think this has a lot of bearing, a lot of fact bearing, a lot of practical application to the community. What it means for community, what it means for you and I to actually be brothers and sisters in Christ. So what I mean by that, what I mean by that is that when stuff goes, is that when stuff goes down in your group, I'm a terrible person. And we believe that our hope for forgiveness is found in how low we can condescend ourselves in shame. And in fact, maybe as those who are holding someone accountable, all we do is remind them that they did something wrong. And they are wrong and they are bad. And, and we try to control them by making sure that they know we see them and we're going to get them. We're going to hold them accountable in this community. Conversely, we can constantly try to justify ourselves to our brothers and sisters. You can't tell me what to do. I know that's what the Bible says, but the Bible didn't know about me. And I'm different and I'm special. And I have a special loophole that me and the Holy Spirit agreed upon when I became a Christian that that passage would not apply to me. So I'm good. I know what it says, but I'm different. And we constantly are trying to prove how good we are. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? How tragic this can be for our community. If some of us constantly are like, I'm so bad, and some of us are like, I'm so good, neither of us are trusting in the Lord and all of us are trusting in ourselves. Let's remember, the, the person that Paul has in mind is Abraham. It's Abraham and it's David in Romans chapter 4. A, a man that Jews considered extremely godly, Paul says, is ungodly. In fact, they stake their claim on godliness based upon their relationship or their connection with Abraham. But Jesus in John chapter 8 confronts this kind of thinking. Essentially, people came to Jesus. They came to Jesus and told him that Abraham was their father and therefore they are godly. Do you know what Jesus said to these religious, Bible-believing Jews who were obedient and were faithful? In other words, moralistic. Jesus said, Abraham is not your father. Satan is. Satan is. And what's Jesus' justification for telling him that? Because you don't trust me. You trust yourself. This is John chapter 8 in God's word. He says to some of the most holy people we would have ever met if we were living in the first century, he's like, Abraham is not your daddy. Satan is, and you're following and trusting him. Do you see people that think they are godly are actually incredibly ungodly, and those who perhaps think that they are beyond saving and beyond help, Jesus calls you beloved. Church, I think that the Bible holds this duality for us in perfect tension. We are beloved, and yet we are broken. 
You see, from the very beginning all the way through the end, God's word reveals our belovedness as those who bear the very image of God. And so, brothers and sisters at church in the square, we are always supposed to see each other as those who bear the image of our creator. No matter what someone says to you, does to you in this community, the first way we understand each other according to God's word is that you are made in the image of God. The way we see our neighbors is through the image of God. The way we see Adam Toledo is through that lens as the image of God. We see those whom God has created as his not as people in our way, not as inconveniences to us, not people that we hate or that we, those who are made in the image of God. This is primary for us. And yet, the scriptures teach us we are incredibly broken. So the image of God is not license for us to sin. The image of God is a call for us to love. So as we love, part of our identity is wrapped up in this brokenness as those who have sinned against the God who has created us. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. So are we good or are we bad? The Bible says yes. Yes, we are. That means as Christians, we need to be careful about simply seeing people through the lens of their sinfulness, but we should also be cautious about being cajoled by the world's refusal to concede sinfulness at all. We are beloved and we are broken. The good news, and this is such good news, is that this duality is temporary. It's temporary. One of these will fade away because Jesus will return, set things to rights, and one day we will only be beloved. We will no longer be broken. Jesus' fullness of his death and resurrection and return will bring about the fullness of the fruit of healing and of wholeness that he has promised to us. And this takes place because Jesus accomplishes all of this on the cross when he traded places with us. See, we can transfer trust from ourselves to him because Jesus transferred himself and put himself in our place. On the cross, the beloved one allowed himself to be treated as if he was broken. The righteous one as if he was sinful, the good one as if he was evil. And because he has done this, you and I, who are broken, sinful, and evil, might become beloved, righteous, and blessed people now and forever. You see, this transfer of trust can take place because Jesus took our place. He took our sin upon his shoulders, and what Paul is teaching us here is that he gives us and grants us his righteousness. Paul tells us there are two kinds of people, those who trust themselves, their works, those who believe or trust in the God who justifies the ungodly. Trust the one who forgives sins. Trust the one who covers sin. Trust the one who does not count sins no longer against us because he counted them graciously against us. My sisters and brothers, you are beloved, and yet you are broken. This is all of us. We are all in this together by God's grace. Can you even imagine if we became a community that lived seriously, that we were all broken and all needed help? Nobody was above needing burdens lifted and carried but no one was beyond the scope of the belovedness that has been impressed upon us by the Lord. Can you imagine how we would talk to each other differently? Can you imagine how we would seek forgiveness differently? Can you imagine how we would come together in the middle of stress and pain and challenges and burdens? Can you imagine? This changes everything if we see one another as those who need help and yet those who have been loved and transformed by the work of Christ, beloved yet broken. See, by faith one day, Christ will complete the righteous work that he has begun 
bringing healing and wholeness. What's that mean for us between then and now? Trust God, not yourself. When we begin to trust ourselves, we think we have, to choo- we have to choose whether we're good or whether we're bad. But in Christ, we live in this temporary tension of being beloved and yet broken, trusting that one day he'll bring the fullness of his work to bear in his return. See, it's when we trust in God and not in ourselves, that's where we find the righteousness of Christ. That's where it dwells for us. So may we be a people who embrace that in ourselves and in one another. And Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd help us in this it's hard. There's different parts of our hearts and our minds that reject either our belovedness or our brokenness. And so we need your help to submit to your word, to even live with this kind of truth in our hearts and our minds in community. So we ask God, equip us in this, encourage us in this, empower us in this, so that we might more and more become the people who you're calling us to be here on the northwest side of the city, all over the world. God, we ask that you would help us, your church, we thank you that one day, Lord, you will present the church to yourself without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. In other words, just completely beloved and no longer broken. Between now and then, we trust in you. We trust only in you. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.